Welcome to the latest episode of the Marland Institute podcast. I'm Carl Pike, lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary. I'm delighted that our guest today is Professor Leah Rapee. Leah is Professor in Political Theory at the London School of Economics. And in this episode, Professor Rapee is speaking about her new book, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History, which is a memoir of her childhood in Albania. It's an incredible book, a really brilliant read, which tells us so much about a time of dramatic political change in the 1980s, 1990s, and before. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Leah. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to start with um, just some questions about writing, if I could. Um, the writing in the in the book is 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 really brilliant, I think, and we'll come on. Uh, I hope to some questions about sort of the style of the writing. I saw you tweet when you were shortlisted for the uh, for the Bailey Gifford Prize, just about um, being nominated for an English language nonfiction prize and what that meant to you. I just wondered if we could start there and you could maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I was sort of relieved when the uh, long list and then the shortlist announcement for the Bailey Gifford came through because I've gone through writing in English almost universal paranoia for the entire time which I've been writing in English and actually not just in English but in every language that I speak because I've lived in different countries for most of my life and my writing has always been shaped by this sense of anxiety about having to explain myself in languages in which I felt like I never completely belonged and I always experienced this as a kind of constraint this inability to express yourself properly knowing that there is always a better way in which you could phrase your thoughts. And what made it even worse was that at some point I realized that I couldn't think, oh, if only I could write in Albanian, because I discovered that I had also actually lost a lot of my Albanian. I had spent so long away from Albania that I felt like an alien in my native language as well. And so in a way, it was really strange to be shortlisted and to be recognized as someone who could receive this prize that celebrates excellent writing in English, because it was almost like, as I was saying, like being offered shelter for this kind of linguistic homelessness that has always been part of me and part of my writing. So, yeah, that was that was a sense of relief, because, as I say, I experienced this sense of inadequacy whenever I was writing in any language, really including Albanian. And so it was really strange to be told that I was actually writing well. Well, you definitely do. I mean, the, 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 the reason I found it interesting is because is you, you also talk about language in the book, um, because um, uh, when you were younger and when you were a child, you, um, you, you spoke in French. Could you just sort of reflect on that briefly? Because I, mean, I remember you sort of almost had similar feelings then, but with French and Albanian. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I grew up with my grandmother who was um, speaking French to me, as I explained in the book, in part because she came from this aristocratic family in which French was the lingua franca in the family. And for her during communist Albania, I guess speaking French to me was like a way of preserving her class identity. And so that was my first language. But she spoke it as a foreign language as well, because she'd never been to France and she, we didn't have any cousins uh, in France. And, you know, obviously we couldn't travel to France during communism. We could travel anywhere. And so I, I was being taught as a first language, this language that was someone's not first language and someone who had acquired it as part of their cultural identity in a way, but connected to this world that was completely detached from my world and from her world. And so it was, again, a sort of sense of... And then I learned Albanian slightly later 
when I went to uh, kindergarten and afterwards in school. So I always felt this, um, for the, these first years of my life, this sense of alienation in both French and Albanian. Eventually, I think I recovered from that because then Albanian became dominant. And then obviously I was studying in Albanian, uh, reading and, and writing in Albanian and so on. But there yeah. was always this reflection around different languages and what they do to the mind, I guess, yeah. <laughs> very early on. Your diaries play a role in the in the drafting, um, or the, the writing, I should say, of the book. Diaries from when you were a child. Indeed, the, the sort of um, the, the the book switches towards the end to 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 the diaries. I just wondered what role did the did the diaries play in in the idea of the book? Did, did what was it like going back to them, revisiting them, and, and reading them? Yeah, so I didn't start by thinking that I was going to use the diaries, actually, in part because the book started as an ideas-based book, started as a philosophical project around this idea of freedom and these different traditions in political thought, liberal and socialist traditions. And then at some point, I discovered that I wanted to actually write more from a personal, from a first personal perspective, but also in a way that engaged more characters and stories and not just abstract philosophical concepts. And so the more it became a project that was trying to retrieve these different ideas of freedom in different characters and different institutions and different circumstances, the more I felt that I needed detail in my writing. And so then the first part of the book, especially, which was about this um, communist period in Albania, which is my early childhood, you had to think, first of all, what you remembered and talk to people about things that you might remember or you might remember wrong. So I was talking to um, friends and relatives and family members and so on. And then my diaries also helped a lot because from the age of 10, when things began to change in Albania, I was making notes of what was going on around me, partly, I guess, as a way of understanding changes. And through the diaries, I was able to think about how a 10, 11 year old thinks in a way. And so mm. I was able to then reconstruct this, I guess, the main character in the book, which is this little girl who is 11 and who experiences this transition from, from socialism to liberal capitalism and the diaries really helped in terms of thinking about what was what would be a credible thought what would be someone that you could actually is this some something that an 11 year old could really think about or is this something that struck me or not and that was really important um, in terms of retrieval and so the diaries really helped with um, with that but also afterwards as I went on with the second part of the book which is about me as a teenager then I had much more detailed entries in the diary because from, as I say, from the age of 10, I was keeping very uh, detailed records. And so that really helped then also reconstruct the stories and, um, and the characters. And uh, in 97, which is the part in the book that becomes just diary, part of the reason for why I did that was that I found it really hard that there comes to this point in 97 where there is a civil war and everything collapses around me. And what struck me reading the diaries was that there was a sense of one day things seemed completely normal and I was optimistic and I didn't think anything was particularly dramatic. And then the day after, I had this completely sense of despair and tragedy around me. And it was very hard as a narrator who tries to reconstruct a coherent narrative to know how to put these things together and how to convey the sense that war can be both things, can be both a lot of enthusiasm or a lot of, you know, sense of normality and having living your life as a normal teenager one day and then the day after thinking, well, I'm going to die. This is really dangerous. So I didn't really know how to convey these ups and downs. And that's partly why I went and decided to just reproduce the diary entries as they were back then, which is also why 
that chapter in the book is basically completely unedited. It's just the way it appears in the diaries. There's such a range, I think, in the book in terms of, um, you know, there's moments of real suspense. I, I, I remember reading that there's a moment at a dinner I think with some neighbours when you say something and I gasped because I sort of <laughs> gathered, you know, it was one of those things that was that, that, that you maybe shouldn't have said. And then you recreate the atmosphere of a big community dinner thrown by the man known as the crocodile. Yeah. Uh, which is, a, is, a, is, is another just brilliant scene where you, you really feel the atmosphere of that dinner in the community. What kind of literary influences you've had over your years of, of reading and writing and, and, and perhaps some of the influences for the book? Do you have any kind of favourite either autofiction or nonfiction writers or novelists? Yeah, I guess I could um, divide this in a way in periods. So from my childhood, I grew up with uh, very little television and with a lot of books, which we would get from the library or from bookshops. And so we had lots of Arab and Albanian and Russian folk tales, but we also had children's adaptations of the Greek tragedies. And so I was always really interested in, you know, these children's adaptations, Homer and Aeschylus and Sophocles and so all the kind of Greek Greek tragedies. Mm -hmm. And I remember what I was really fascinated by was how I thought that the Greek gods were both so powerful but also so powerless at the same time and how in some ways all of their stories were about people that were or, or gods that were victims of their own power and then when I was and so that's I guess one thing that's one of the themes that I've always been interested in this is themes mm. of freedom and unfreedom and, and power that is exercised almost against ourselves and then when I was growing up, uh, especially as a teenager, I was really interested in 19th century Russian literature. And so my favorite author of all times is Dostoevsky uh, with Tolstoy as a kind of close second. And again, I think there is a sense in which I was gravitating when I was interested in these themes, on these sort of themes of freedom and necessity that kind of plays out in these Greek myths and tragedies, but then also comes back and, and I think um, mm. was what made me attracted to these um, to these Russian novels. And as I say, at some point in Free, I was reading War and Peace during this 1997 civil war in Albania, and it was a big factor. It was through those novels that I decided to, to study philosophy. And uh, so maybe some people will remember that War and Peace ends with this kind of big sweeping critique of the philosophy of history, mm. and where Tolstoy tries to show that it's pointless to try and reconstruct meaning in history. And that became, in a way, also my main theme of interest when I decided to study philosophy. So I, I would say then the third stage is this interest in philosophical literature, which started with this kind of philosophical nihilism, but which I abandoned very quickly at university, where I was particularly interested in Enlightenment philosophical tradition, and especially in Kant and Marx. And so, as I said, where, where I started, most of my academic work has been an effort to show how this socialist philosophical tradition has its roots in the, not in the destruction of these liberal ideas of freedom, uh, yeah. in a kind of moral critique of the societies that we, um, that we live in. And so I would say these were my three main uh, sources of influence. You mentioned writing in your childhood, for instance, poems. I mean, obviously, you've published much academic writing. When you began writing free, did it... Did it feel like you were returning to a more creative place? And and I, I just wondered if you'd always been interested in, in writing a, a book for a, for non-academic audiences. Yeah, I mean, I was I, I studied philosophy because I wanted to be a writer and because I was interested in this kind of literature that I was just telling you. And, uh, and I did write poetry and also short stories when I was in Albania before I started university. 
But then at some point I decided that it was really hard to make a living as a writer <laughs> in the West. And so I had kind of really given up actually on creative writing, even though it was something I always wanted to do and really enjoyed doing um, for whatever, for reasons of necessity, I felt like I couldn't really do it. And so when this uh, project, this opportunity to think and write a, a book for a wide audience came, it, and when I started to think about it and how to convey these ideas, then all the more the more literary things that I had been reading came back to me. And then I decided maybe it was worth trying to rescue that desire to do more yeah. creative writing, which I had, as I said, always had, but then at some point abandoned. So I surprised myself by going back to this um, wish that I thought I had forsaken in a way. Just moving from the, the writing to the story uh, a, a little bit, um, there's, a, there's a chapter which I think is called The End of History, um, which acts as a kind of bridge uh, between parts one and two of the book. Uh, again, I think it's one of those moments where the, the writing and the style um, adds a lot to the experience of reading the book because the reader gets a lot of information in that chapter. Um, and there's a kind of tearing away of, of sort of layers of meaning that were there in part one, but that, that were sometimes obscuring things. Um, it's a big rush of, of facts. And I just wondered if, 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 if that, in a sense, was a little bit like it felt at the time um, that period where you know there is a obviously there's a move in the book from part one to part two but there was you know a, a big transformation in the political context of that moment i think you're right there was this sense of which i think the chapter tries to convey this sense of confusion and disorientation which mm. is part of the sort of coming of age story i guess which is the sort of the abandonment or the leaving behind of childhood which in this case coincides with the leaving behind of all the also all the secrets of the childhood and all the ideologies and so on, and and the book is is actually a, is an effort is, is a coming of age story both at an individual level but also at a collective level. So there is always this connection between the individual discovering that things weren't really as she thought they were, and then the country also in some ways trying to discover truths about freedom and about you know what what social system to live under which also weren't really present in the past or that were censored and so on and so there is a sense in which there is a personal cognitive and emotional evolution in the individual which coincides with the evolution or with the revolution of the country from one political system to the other and in both cases it's a relatively traumatic coming of age story and so mm. that chapter is really a combination of, on the one hand, all discovering all the information, so all the facts that you only knew through hints or that you had doubted or things that you were, sort of all the uncertainties of childhood and all these mysteries that I had grown up with and I was surrounded by that eventually get unveiled and you discover that you'd grown up in a dissident family when you thought that you were actually a good pioneer and lived in a sort of perfect socialist society. But also for the country, I think something similar goes on in the sense that there was discovery of the possibilities that people didn't think were possibilities until that point in time, because Albania's um, socialism experience had been slightly different from the rest of Eastern Europe. And so when things were opening up in Eastern Europe, people in the country weren't so convinced that they would actually also change in Albania, partly as a result of the isolation. And so... What that chapter does is try and track both the personal experience and this mm -hmm. whole sort of transition from the family secrets and this conflict between the point of view of the state and the point of view of the family, which is implicitly alluded and foreshadowed throughout the first part. And that 
people can get to because you can see there's these glimpses and these mysteries and things that happen, particular scenes like the dinner scene that you're mentioning and so on, but never really, you don't really get told what's going on. And then at the collective level, it's also this idea that you know, this was a moment of breaking point where new opportunities were becoming available and opening up for the country without people though knowing exactly what the direction of travel was going to be. And so where you have this replacement of a certain way of looking at the world with another way of looking at the world and, and the sense of confusion that comes from that and hesitation alongside all the opportunities. It's sort of a, a replacement of some sort of orientation points in part one with new ones in part two and inevitably therefore there's a kind of a, a break there between sort of losing those ones from you know the period of of, of, of communist rule before you enter the the sort of new ones and you, you offer examples of the you know the sort of the way of looking at the world in part one of the book um you know, very familiar socialist themes and then the way of looking at the world in part two of the book where you introduce quite familiar free market themes. And I, I just wondered if you could reflect a little bit more upon that too, in the sense of these sort of what what it's kind of like to move from a world of one meanings to one of just entirely different ones in a sense. In a way, both parts are about the ways in which ideologies shape our lives and shape and help us form the categories with which we interpret the world. And so the first part and, and part of the replacement of these kind of discursive categories that we have through which we make sense of the world and part of the transition from part one to part two is exactly that it's you have one worldview which is the kind of marxist dogmatic marxist rather worldview in the first part of the book and uh, and you get told you know what does it mean to live in a just society and why do you need the dictatorship of the proletariat and why the party is the most important institution that kind of guides decisions at the collective level in this society and then overnight, all of that changes. People stop believing in these categories anymore. In fact, uh, as I try and explain in that chapter, because the, um, the legacy of that period is so tragic and because of the chain of complicity and responsibility and collective harm that results from that period is so high, there is a sense in which it becomes really hard to untangle individual responsibilities and there is a sort of sense of collective implication in this structure which had ended up having these tragic effects on the lives of many individuals, which means that because it becomes so hard to disentangle personal responsibility, there's almost a sense of the whole system, regardless of how it gets applied, where it gets applied, at what particular point in time, what constraints lead to it taking this particular form, is just destroyed and everyone is really angry with almost with the philosophers and with the categories because they can't get angry with each other because it's so hard to come up with this historical reckoning. And so, uh, as I say, only ideas are kind of left to blame. And so the ideas are just replaced overnight and the textbooks that, get, you know, Marx's books get burned and, uh, and there is a sense in which this entire way of looking at the world is the wrong one. And what you get is a new way of looking at the world, which in part comes as a result of this void left by the previous one and in part because of influence from outside and so you get all these new categories of you know civil society and market reform and shock therapy mm. and all the familiar categories that have framed the transition not just in Albania but in Eastern Europe more generally and you get almost the same kind of degree of dogmatic commitment to these new categories and the same degree of uh, lack of scrutiny with regard to how they get applied and what effects they have on the lives of individuals and so on and so it becomes as I say it's really a story of two forms of ideological delusion 
which both lead to their own problems, but, but for different reasons. I mean, you have a terrific line where you, you sort of broadly make the point that, it's, that I think it's like the politics is gone. All that's left is to decide on on the sort of almost the timing of a policy. Was there kind of an absence of politics in the sense of you know, this this is the new way, and it's it's simply about following a process. It's not really about what what you're going to decide as a country or as, as or as politicians or as a people. Yeah, well, in the sense I think that there may have been paths not taken which you know people just didn't that weren't followed through because of the way in which the story was told and was interpreted as one of just overall failure throughout the eastern bloc and including albania and complete abandonment of history and of the legacy of the past and of these ideas and uh, these philosophical texts that had sort of shaped the ideas and so on and so basically i think what happened was that people abandoned these categories and then there was there were these new categories that came overnight and there wasn't really a sufficient critical scrutiny of how they were going to apply because the idea was you need to make these sacrifices. The model you are leaving behind is a failed one in any case for all circumstances, for all societies at all times. And so what you need is this new free market orthodoxy coupled with political pluralism and opening up of democracy and so on. And there was a sense that some of these were choices that people on the ground were making or had that had wanted and some others came in the package as though they were part of the same package but in fact there was no margin of decision making or no deliberation around which of these you know is there an alternative way of thinking about this is an is there an alternative way of thinking about democratization for example or about market reform or of closing up state enterprises or the costs of transition it felt as though all these decisions were made somewhere else and people just came to Albania with a bunch of, uh, with a list of things that needed to be done and kind of boxes that needed to be ticked. And mm. so when I say that it turned into a question of policy and not politics, it's because at the fundamental level of decision-making and at a fundamental level of collective, in a way, exercise of political judgment, what was really lacking is the reckoning with the whole, with the whole model, which was a societal model, which was just endorsed. And then within that model that was endorsed, people just had to decide how to promote these reforms as opposed to whether they were desirable or not. You're reflecting on the end of the one-party period. And I think you're kind of summarising a mood, which is that we, we, can't, we can't fail. Like we, we, can't go, we can't go back. Like, you know, wh- wherever it is, there can't be any kind of failure. And it reminded me of, of, of a word which is used a lot in, in politics, which is progress. Mm. Um, you know, where are you going? Well, you know, it's progress. Um, it's a sort of, it's sort of forwards in time. It can mean lots and lots of different things. And I, I, I just wondered what, what that meant to you today, re- reflecting on, on, on the memoir as well. I think what made it troublesome at that point was this idea that there were there was a vision of what the right society ought to look like, which was given as this kind of horizon to which this entire collective needs to tend almost. And so it was this, I'd say, teleological vision, but in a wrong way, because I think there is a more critical and more nuanced way of understanding what the teleology of history is. And this wasn't that. I think it was the sense of you need to catch up to something that other people have done. There's a sense of, you know, distinction mm. between, for example, developing and developed states. And the idea is that developed states have already developed and they have, you know, they embody the right and the good. And what you need to do as a developing country is to catch up with this narrative and to catch up with this level of development of other states because they set the model, which I think was problematic for many reasons. But also because really, if you care about freedom, freedom should be in the way in which you 
try to achieve certain goals, but also in the way in which you articulate yourself these goals. And so autonomy is about making yourself autonomous in a way and articulating these um, ideals as you go with um, experience, with sensitivity to circumstance, to um, to different historical conditions, to different constraints that come from different periods and so on. So I feel there is a sort of a way of thinking about progress, which is flawed, which is this idea of these are the targets or these are the goals and this is what you need to do and every society just needs to catch up with this. And there's another way, which I think is a more nuanced way of thinking about progress, which is as a way of sort of learning from the uh, trials and the failures of the past. And so mm. of thinking about history as almost a learning process through which you can see historically what experiences, uh, how they take place and how they get shaped and how ideals become institutions and how these institutions then generate different contradictions and different constraints for individuals. And then when you think about the future, you articulate your ideals of the just society, let's say, by thinking about the past in this more critical, more nuanced way. And that's how I think about progress, basically. Um, Not so much as something that, you know, is catching up with something that's ready and, um, and, 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 and that you just need to implement, but rather as this method of, you know, learning from history and, and philosophically combining reflection with about ideas with insights from experience the the philosophical theme that you're constantly considering and and reflecting on through the book is freedom and i just wanted to finish a, with with some questions then about about socialism do you want to just briefly explain then the relationship you see between um socialism and, and freedom i mean i started by saying that i think there is this commitment to freedom that is part of the modern philosophical tradition in a way and kind of the enlightenment philosophical tradition and which I think, as I say, when people understand, when people talk about socialism and when they talk about liberalism, usually you think of socialism as a kind of critique of liberal ideas of freedom in the name of equality. And I think of it as a kind of moral critique of the societies in which we live that tries to radicalize the commitment to freedom that is that shapes this modern philosophical tradition and which is really important to see where and why sociologically and historically it backfires. And so for me, the socialist critique of liberalism and capitalism is in a way a critique that tries to say, yes, freedom is philosophically the kind of, is the right ideal, and this is what we should be committed to, and we should want to live in a free society. But for a number of reasons and for a number of historical constraints, these societies actually fail to realize freedom because they only give you freedom for some people and not for other people. And so they don't coherently and consistently apply that ideal to their, to, the, to their institutions. These institutions always have margins of oppression and exclusion, and there's always categories of people that are actually that remain unfree even within these um, societies. And what I do is when I think about the relationship between liberal, liberalism and socialism, I try and combine a kind of moral critique of society, which I in some ways reconstruct by thinking about Kant's critique of morality and Kant's moral theory, and then combine that with the more Marxist historical and sociological critique, which explains why is it that the societies that we have don't realize this kind of Kantian moral ideal. And so this Kantian moral element is actually very strong in the book. It comes through through the character of my grandmother. I mean, at least it's sort of hinted at. It's not really developed philosophically. But mm. I would say it's foundational in the sense that it helps me shape the kind of symmetry with which I judge these two different systems, liberalism on the one hand and socialism on the other, from a kind of moral perspective, which enables you to see their failings in both cases and to try and think about 
an alternative society as that which is built with this Kantian moral foundation and which learns from the failures of these different models in a way. At the end of the book, I think you touch on that a little bit when you reflect on conversations you had, I think when you were at university at this point, where um, people didn't seem to not so keen on hearing some of your reflections um, about the experience you'd actually had and were instead more focused on the theoretical possibilities of socialism. Do you think reflecting on the failures, learning from the failures, do you think that happens enough, particularly on the left? Uh, I, I don't think it's been what's distinguished the left in the last 30 years, in part because there has been no identification in a way with these left-wing projects that have failed in, in Eastern Europe in particular, in part because, of, as I said, there is a sense that, and, and, I, and I connect that in a way to a sense of liberal paternalism, which I think is also shared by the left, which is this belief in the idea that when you know particular countries with a particular tradition of institutions, and I'd say in their eyes also a degree of maturity around these institutions, are committed to these ideals, then they will get it right in a way. I think the belief is that you know socialism has failed in countries like you know Albania or Russia or whatever Soviet Union because they were backward in some ways because they didn't have a sufficiently robust um, tradition, which in part is true. But I think it's also, the failure is not just due to that. I think it's also due to a failure in the theories that shape these institutions to actually really be concerned with democracy and to investigate the sort of political resources in this tradition. So to me, the problem is that Marxism for a very long time has been just a kind of critique of material relations and a critique of capitalism and has been interested in economic categories and contradictions that result from the application of these economic categories. And I feel it hasn't really been part of that tradition to kind of think through what political power is and how does democracy work and how can you how do how do these institutions operate these real these these socialist institutions when they succeed in taking power and so on. So for me it's true that some of the failure is due to the historical and particular circumstances of these societies, which would have been different. And, you know, and that's also why socialism takes different shape in these different societies. That's why we don't get one kind of socialism. But for me, what marked the, the critique and what, what was um, remarkable was the fact that none of these socialist experiments was actually considered socialism. So there was a sense in which socialism has never been tried, never been realized. And when the Western mm. left decides to commit to it, then it's going to all work out and it will be mm. great for everyone. And to me, it seemed like a very naive approach to how ideals are reflected in institutions, you know, what uh, consequences they can generate. And that without really engaging in this more historically nuanced way with the history of socialism, there is a very high degree of risk that the same mistakes will actually come to haunt the left if this experience were to become viable again, and if people were interested in, in socialist ideals and in a real fundamental critique of capitalist societies um, in the way in which many on the left would like people to engage with. But to me, for that critique to be sufficiently viable, it needs to come with an equal degree of sensitivity to the historical constraints and to the circumstances and to what has happened in the past. And so with an equal interest in, in a way, learning from this history. Leo, thank you so much um, for coming on and talking about um, the book and, and your broader reflections. I think they're absolutely fascinating. Um, just to remind uh, listeners, the book is free, Coming of Age at the End of History by Leo Ippi. Um, it's available in all good bookshops um, and it's an absolutely fantastic read. I honestly couldn't recommend it enough. Thank you very much um, for listening to the latest episode.
of the podcast. You can follow the Mile End Institute um, on all of the usual social media channels, and you can subscribe uh, all on the Mile End Institute website. Thank you.